sharing with you the birth of William Augustine Forster, Friday morning. It's Rebecca's, my grandson, Rebecca's and Steve's son in New York, and uh, Betsy is with them, and we are rejoicing in the birth of this precious boy. Good lungs, he's got good lungs. And uh, every child, every grandchild that was born, from, starting with the very first, when Beth uh, had our first grandchild, she put the phone next to Ella's ear so she could hear her granddaddy, and I was just overcome. And all I could do was sing the doxology to her, and that became the pattern with all the grandkids. So when Rebecca called me on FaceTime and I saw that she was okay, and the baby was okay, I wasn't quite prepared for that. And I, I kind of lost it, but I, I, I was able to get through it. But I thought, you know, at the end of this service, the Signal Mountain Bible Church Choir, have you sing heartily. So we will look forward to that at the end of the service when we heartily sing the doxology to the Lord and uh, for those who are watching on live stream, uh, not just in New York. Uh, next Sunday, Lewis will begin our studies in the text of the book of James. Uh, it's going to be a rich and a very practical study, challenging us to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And my job today is to kind of set the table for that, for that feast and maybe lay out an appetizer or two. How many tell-all books do you think have been written by Trump White House individuals since he left office? How many tell-all books? No idea, really. I, but within the last three years, there have been 12 that were written by Trump insiders. That's 12. As of last one was published two weeks ago. As we've seen this week, the political drama never quite stops. Uh, it's ongoing. And for all we know, there are White House staffers working on future tell-all books about the Biden White House. Some themes seem sort of common about tell-all books. First of all, there's for many, the desire to vindicate themselves, that is, to set the record straight so that they look good, at least from their perspective, of what they were involved in. And a second purpose seems to be the desire to gossip, <laughs> packaged in the form of, this is the truth that nobody do but me. The most important person in all of history for believer and unbeliever alike, is Jesus Christ. What if his brother James wrote a tell-all book about Jesus? Telling all about his early life, about his teenage years, about his relationships with his mother and his father and his sisters and brothers, uh, about his friendships, about his family. What would you be curious about. And, and I, would, I would ask this question a different way. Would you rather have a very long gospel of James or a short epistle of James, which is what we have? What would be your preference? I mean, if you think about it, Matthew and John were with Jesus for only three years. James, almost three decades. 
Now, if the Spirit had inspired James to write a gospel, what crazy interpretations do you think that we would read into all the details? I think it'd be sort of insane. Instead, James wrote an epistle against tell-all books, against the sins of the tongue, against gossip, along with other topics that were critical for church, that are critical for church life, for being doers of the word, because James was a pastor, the pastor of Jerusalem Bible Church, of course. But today, my purpose is to introduce you to the man, James himself, what his early life may have been like, how his mind changed about his brother Jesus, and I'd I'd like to sort of pull back the curtain and think about the man behind the book. And when you look closely at the Gospels, when you look at the Gospels and you also bring in a map for where Jesus was at various times and where Nazareth was, and when you bring the calendar to see where he was month by month, as much as we are able to tell, when you do that and you move your eyes over the crowd out in the shadows is James or some of the other brothers. I am sure at times they were there for some of the things that we see. What is James thinking? And, and as we reflect on that, there is a kind of comfort for me in knowing that Jesus, even Jesus, had unbelieving family members. We'll get to that later. So my goal today is to try to piece together the story. Instead of praying without ceasing, we're going to speculate without ceasing. So we're, I, I want to piece together the story of James, Jesus' half-brother, not James, the brother of John. James is mentioned only twice in the gospel, this James. Once in Matthew, once in Mark, not at all in Luke or John. And both Matthew and Mark are reporting the same event, and it's not a happy event. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, we have to acknowledge that there is one big question that we cannot answer. And that question is, what did Mary and Joseph share with their children about Jesus' birth, about Jesus' identity? My guess, nothing. Since Jesus' life was incognito, I doubt that Mary shared those stories until after he began his ministry. Twice we read, she pondered these things in her heart. Does that mean she meditated on them or that she kept them to herself? Maybe both. Now remember, God had given a message to Mary. Hail, favored one. The Lord is with you. And then the angel said about Jesus, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. But then Herod put a contract on the life of the baby Jesus. And they had to protect his identity. Fast forward two to three years after the birth and Joseph and Mary have settled in Nazareth. Here's how the timing apparently worked since they had traveled from Nazareth down to Bethlehem and then to Egypt when Herod was trying to kill the baby and then they returned to Nazareth and since the text that describes those travels refers only the text refer only to the child and his mother or 
the child and his family, not the children. Apparently, James was not born until after they settled back in Nazareth and life became normal. Okay? There was no second announcement to Mary. Hail, favored one, your son shall be called James and he shall be the pastor of the Jerusalem church. That did not happen. Life was normal. And I would imagine that James was at least three, with the timing, was at least three years younger than Jesus. So that when Jesus began his ministry at age 30, James may be 27 or so, or younger. And this leads to another important fact that I think you know because we've mentioned it before. While James was the first naturally conceived child of Mary and Joseph, he was not the last. Our Roman Catholic friends believe in the perpetual virginity uh, of Mary, but there's no biblical evidence for that. Instead, Scripture says that Joseph kept Mary a virgin until she brought forth her firstborn son. So it's no surprise that in Matthew chapter 13, just listen to verse 55, we read this incredulous statement by the Nazarenes, the people of Nazareth, is not his mother called Mary? Apparently Joseph was dead by this time. And his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Let's think about that for a moment. You're James growing up in this family. After Jesus, James is born, universally acknowledged as the oldest. His name is Jacobos or actually Jacob, the Old Testament. And then there was Joseph, and then there was Simon or Simeon. And then there was Judas or Jude, named after Judah. Common names. But have you ever noticed that all four of the names are named after the patriarchs in Genesis? Jacob and his sons. But there's more. The text says, and his sisters, if you put Matthew and Mark together, and his sisters, are they not all still with us? Greek has a word for both. It's not used here. All, three or more. And they are still with us, which invites us to assume what the townspeople knew, that they have married and still are there with us in Nazareth. What I'm getting at is instead of a family portrait of Mary and Joseph and Jesus in the middle, the only child, you've got a pretty large picture here of a good-sized family with sisters and brothers-in-law and nieces and nephews. Now, I'm getting ahead of the timeline, and I'm going to be going back and forth with the timeline because I'm trying to put together some of the pieces. I'm suggesting that all, so far I'm suggesting that all the stories that we're familiar with about the birth of Jesus, about Gabriel and the census and Bethlehem, arriving there, no room in the inn, the, the, the stabling birth, uh, the, the shepherds, Anna and Simeon and the temple, uh, living in Bethlehem for a while, the wise men coming with the gifts, fleeing to Egypt to avoid Herod, then locating back to Nazareth, Almost none of the story that related to Jesus' identity was told to his siblings 
until after his ministry began. I, uh, that is what I'm suggesting. And, and if so, if that is accurate, that would mean that Joseph was not alive to back up her story. When and if Mary told them, the fact of the matter is, they didn't believe the fact of the matter. I wonder if the timing of this disclosure was a topic of conversation ever between Mary and Jesus. Now back to the early years, as Jesus grew up, brothers and sisters were added to the family, grew up alongside him. Luke 2, 51 and 52 tells us he continued in subjection to his parents. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So, James, that's your big brother. Try living up to that. Probably the most memorable event in James's young life was when his brother was left behind in Jerusalem at age 12, when James maybe 9 or 10. And since the men traveled in different groups for protection, both front and back, the women and the children in the middle with, with various groups from various towns, since Jesus was at the transi that transition age, age 12, and since there were a lot of children underfoot, it would be easy for Mary and Joseph each to assume that Jesus was with the other group. And when they made the horrible discovery that Jesus was missing, Joseph's family had to turn around, retrace their steps, and to their amazement, there is Jesus, sitting calmly in the temple, outsmarting the smartest men in the country. And if you're James, and your brother seems to get away with it, no consequences, just claim you're doing God's work, yeah, right, let me try that. Imagine for you to be the child to introduce your parents to tantrums. And if James did know any of the birth story, to have your mother refer to your brother as my savior. Did a star or did the angel show up at your birthday party? Am I sounding a little cynical here? Yeah. You think James wasn't? In a way, I'm, I'm trying to nudge your biblical imaginations in between the guardrails of biblical possibilities as we think about James. Well, the years passed, and Scripture speaks of both Joseph and Jesus. It doesn't refer to the rest of their occupations, but Joseph and Jesus as, as uh, we, carpenters, maybe. But the Greek word for carpenter actually means builder, whether in wood or stone or some other material. And Jesus, that would be Joseph and Jesus. They were builders. After Joseph died, and we don't know when, Jesus, who had helped support his family as a builder like his father, at the age of 30, and I believe by that time, all the siblings were out of the nest, especially with young betrothals and so on. Uh, at the age of 30, wasn't deserting his family, but it, it was the right time for him to begin his ministry. 
I would guess that Jesus didn't just disappear. One day he's there, the next day he's gone. He would have said something. But what? And to whom? We don't know. We do know he went into the desert region for 40 days, and he returned very thin. What was he doing in the desert? He was communing with the Father. He was anticipating his ministry. He was fasting. And then at the end, he was tempted by the devil. If you are the son. Then Jesus began, when he returned, and he began his ministry, he started preaching in the synagogues in Galilee, and crowds came to hear him, and disciples gathered around him. And their notorious cousin, John the Baptist, preaching repentance for sins and that the Messiah is coming, point to Jesus, points to Jesus and says, there he is, the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus finally entered the synagogue where he grew up. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4. I want you to follow along on this one. Jesus entered the synagogue where he grew up, where his family attended. And in Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 16, we read a fascinating exchange. As he came, Luke chapter 4, verse 16, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. People knew he was ministering around, right? So he was invited to do the reading. He stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. In the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. The eyes of all in the synagogue. James, Joseph, the brother, Simeon, Jude, brothers-in-law, everybody that was a part of the Nazareth synagogue, sisters on the other side. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. In your hearing. You just heard it. And Jesus spoke it. In the first person. And they were all speaking well of him. Maybe because it's the shortest sermon ever. And wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, here's the problem. So far, so good. <laughs> but they're looking at him. Okay, uh, yeah, all right. But he's got more to say. No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, 
There were many widows in Israel, that is Elijah's home, right? In the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And by the way, later on, James is going to think, illustration of prayer, Elijah. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. That's outside of Israel. That's foreigner material. That's foreigner location. Uh, to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, but none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. He's a Gentile, a foreigner. And all the people in the synagogue, these people who were speaking well of him a moment ago, were filled with rage as they heard these things. What is Jesus saying? God's kingdom is not Jewish only, it's global. It's for everyone. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. Love to have seen that escape. But the thing about it is, when you look at this episode, what was it like? When, you, when the dust settled, what was it like to be a member of the family of Jesus, the extended family of Jesus even? And have your brother-in-law or your brother thrown out of the synagogue and barely escaped this lynching? Any stigma attached to the family for that? But there came a point where, you know, as time passed, at one point, the brothers actually decided we need to confront him. We need to. So they do, and this is in John chapter seven. They go there and and they confront him, and they say basically, "Go ahead." Go on to Jerusalem. Show yourself. They thought they called his bluff. What they didn't realize is that that was actually Jesus' plan. <laughs> but on his own timetable. John 7, 5, however, adds this important detail. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Time passed again. Not sure how much time, but... Finally, they decide, okay, we've got to step in. We've got to put a stop to this. The timing is not certain, but it may have been right after, may have been right after the time when King Herod executed their cousin, John the Baptist. And if Mary had shared her stories about the birth of Jesus and also about the birth of John the Baptist, by this time, you know, about what the angel said about both of them, about the shepherds, Simeon, Anna, uh, the, the wise men and all of that, the brothers may have been wondering at this point, does crazy run in our family? Because John the Baptist, our mother, and Jesus. Because, the reason I say that is because they came, this Mark, Mark, Mark tells us, they came to take charge of him, the text says, because they said he has lost his mind. Doesn't have both oars in the water. And incidentally, Mary went with them. There was no way she was staying behind on this. Well, this is what happened. I'm going to read from Mark 3. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was gathering around, them, around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? 
Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. By the way, the theme of James' book is be doers of the word. So in, in that statement, Jesus has just redefined family in terms of eternity. Earlier, he had redefined salvation in terms of believing in him. He had redefined God's promises as applying not to Jews only, but to everyone. And when you put all of those things, those accretions of antagonisms together, you know that that is the end of that. His brothers, I believe, came, even though they thought he was unbalanced, I believe they came because they loved him. I, I think so. Otherwise, they would have said he's on his own. Let him crash and burn. And I think they would have left this confrontation very afraid that this was not going to end well. But Jesus did come to Nazareth after this. One more time. By this time, more time had passed. His notoriety was, was even greater. And tempers in Nazareth apparently were lower. So he again came to the Nazareth synagogue. How, how did it go this time? The text tells us in Matthew 13, the synagogue rulers took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And listen, he adds this, and in his own household. Catch that, catch that last part. More time passed, and Jesus kept making claims, claims to be Lord of the temple, Lord of the Sabbath. He performed miracles that were undeniable, healing leprosy, healing diseases, healing demon possession, even raising the dead. And if that weren't enough to antagonize the Jewish rulers, Jesus, came, Jesus claimed that a Samaritan could be good and that his message included Gentiles. And he spent time with tax collectors and prostitutes. And he would say provocative things like, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And finally, he claimed with greater and greater explicitness to be equal with God. There was just no low gear in Jesus. And to his brothers, I'm sure it seemed that he had a death wish. At the, final, at the final Passover, that last Passover week, instead of walking into Jerusalem with everybody else and the pilgrims, he enters triumphantly as the Messiah. He sabotaged the chief priest's lucrative yard sale in the temple precincts. He destroyed the Pharisees in debate. He destroyed the scribes in debate. He destroyed the Sadducees in debate, and then he confirmed, again, I am the Messiah, and the temple, it's mine. James would learn about this later, but during that week, on the last night before Jesus was arrested, Jesus began a practice of worship for his followers, using the two most common elements on any table at the time, bread and wine. The bread to symbolize his body, and the wine, he says, is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. And I have to wonder, how many thousands of times 
did James lead the Jerusalem church in that remembrance? Finally, what James dreaded happened. Jesus was arrested, put through the mockery of a trial, horribly tortured, and then crucified. While on the cross, Jesus gave the care of his mother to the apostle John, not to James, the other brothers. Behold your mother, behold your son. Do you remember what he said on the cross? Why give Mary into John's care? Well, think about it. Mary was from Galilee, Nazareth. John was from Galilee, Capernaum, not far away. And if you look ahead a couple of years, my guess, told you speculate without ceasing, my guess, John's grinning, <laughs> my, my guess is that after the persecution of the Jerusalem church heated up and also in Judea became more intense, Mary returned to Galilee under the care of John with her married daughters close by in Nazareth. The brothers stayed in Jerusalem, where James eventually became the leader of the Jerusalem church. Did you know that? I know I'm skipping back and forth in time. I'm trying to tell a story to piece it together. But I, I, I want to explain what I think was probably the case. I want to rewind and say that I don't believe Jesus' brothers were in Jerusalem that Passover week. Which meant they were not at the crucifixion. Their presence, I think, would have been noted. Were they back in Galilee going about their lives and then someone came up and told them the horrors of this past week? That would be my guess. They did not arrive to take Jesus' body, which is what family members would do. Um, that there wouldn't have been time for word to travel up and then for them to travel down for that to happen. And of course, even the disciples were nowhere to be found. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body and, and buried it. But regardless of his location, I have no doubt that the news of the crucifixion of his brother was the lowest point ever in the life of James. His brother Jesus was dead. It happened just like he dreaded that it would happen. He, he, he could pray all he wanted to, that it would make sense somehow, but it didn't. Now, before we move into Acts 1, I want you to pause, and I, I've wondered if this happened. Over the years of Jesus' ministry, one or another of his disciples saying to Jesus, Master, why does it not upset you that your family doesn't believe? And Jesus just smiles because he knows who James and his brothers will become. But Lord, they have to believe now. They have to pray the prayer now. No. Jesus is pouring a mold into which they will be poured, uh, constructing a mold into which they will be poured after things heat up. But it's on his timetable. And as long as long as as was described about Jesus' family, as long as they are still with us, there's hope.
and we continue to pray for them. Okay, so 50 days after Jesus was crucified, everyone's in the upper room with Jesus. Listen to this. I'm reading from Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These all, that is the disciples, with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Jesus' brothers, James, Joseph, Simeon, Jude, what were they doing? The text says, continually devoting themselves to prayer. We're even told how they were there, with one mind. That phrase, with one mind, occurs 11 times in the book of Acts. It focuses our attention on the unity of the body of Christ, which was Jesus' prayer before he, in, in his high priestly prayer the last night, that they, we may be one, focus, with one mind, the unity of the body. Spoiler alert, who was the man who worked hard to preserve that unity in the blended Jerusalem Bible church? James. Now, why were they there? Because something happened between John 7, not even his brothers were believing him, and Acts 1.14, where his brothers are all there in the upper room praying, believing in him. Something happened that changed everything. What happened? Josh read the text to us. In 1 Corinthians 15.7, the Apostle Paul embeds what happened within the definition of the gospel. Here it is, four words, he appeared unto James. And suddenly, everything changed. Suddenly, life was different. He appeared unto James. What was that like? How long were they together? And did Jesus teach James the word? Because in every other resurrection appearance where we're given any detail, Jesus had, first of all, specific things to say to that person, and then secondly, he taught them the word. Whenever that detail is given, we read things like he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, or beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, and, and he describes how all of these things were prophesied in the Old Testament, as he did in the synagogue at Nazareth. These things, today these things are fulfilled in me. So that, I get, I would, what I'm saying is I would be stunned if Jesus didn't teach the word to his brother to begin his preparation as a leader in Jerusalem. But I'd also love to have heard the personal part of it. The relationship aspect of it. And then... After being with the resurrected Jesus, can you imagine the conversation that James had with his other brothers, with Mary? You know it happened. It had to. He did have that conversation. And they, of course, not Mary, but the rest of them had to rethink life. They had to think backwards. Jesus' teaching and his miracles. Now, all those stories that their mother had told them about Jesus, it was true. All of it was true. 
They, they would, could rewind every interaction, every conversation, every resentment. And they had to learn and embrace this truth that because of what Jesus did on the cross, they were forgiven. It was okay. Jesus paid it all. Jesus would have made sure that they knew they were forgiven. And James, Mary, the other brothers were there together in the upper room. He appeared unto James. And there they are, everyone together with one mind. And then, as I mentioned later, James the Nazarene. Remember Nathaniel's question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? James the Nazarene became the leader of the early church, not in Nazareth, but in Jerusalem, of all places. Probably the last job description in the world that James ever envisioned. As we go through the book of James, we may refer to the life of James in the book of Acts from time to time, but just to give you a taste, in Acts chapter 12, when Peter was miraculously released from prison, and he showed up in a prayer meeting causing all kinds of disruption and excitement, we read this, quote, listen, motioning to them with his hand to be silent, Peter described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, and these are the only words that are quoted, he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And then he left and went to another place. That was James. James became the pillar of the Jerusalem church, one of them. And his epistle was arguably the first book in the New Testament to have been written. Many people think that. The interesting thing is that James teaches no new doctrines in this book. His focus is on applying what you know, especially what had been repeated orally in the Sermon on the Mount and how to become doers of the word. I believe James was thinking of his older brother, his Lord and Savior, as the Spirit led him to, to write this epistle. In fact, if I were to read the book of James while looking unto Jesus, here's what we find. And I'm going to just go chapter by chapter, little hors d'oeuvre here and there. James 1 begins with suffering. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Well, who was the exemplar of managing suffering? Jesus, who suffered beyond us all and for us all, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. James talks about being a victim of injustice in chapter 1. Who's the ultimate victim of injustice? Jesus. Who was single-minded in contrast to being double-minded with unstable ways? Jesus, laser-focused on Jerusalem and the cross for our salvation. Who persevered under trials? Jesus, who opened not his mouth. Who was quick to hear, slow to speak by about 30 years, and slow to anger? Definitely, Jesus. Theme of the book, be doers of the word, not merely hearers only. The, who was the ultimate doer of the word who pointed over and over again for us to become doers of the word and the importance of the word of God for life and breath? Jesus, who said, I came to do my father's will, who said, Satan, it is written, it is written, it is written. 
who said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill, fulfill it. Who said, Scripture cannot be broken. Who preached the Sermon on the Mount that echoes in every chapter of this book. That's James 1. James 2. Who refused to show favoritism to the powerful over the poor? Jesus. Who kept the whole law and did not stumble at one point? Jesus. But Gary, uh, um, I'm sorry, let me, I'm going to get ahead of myself. While, while we have the potential to become guilty of all, James 2.10, he knew no sin and became sin for us. Who showed his faith by his works more than anybody else? Jesus. Now, James uses the illustration of Abraham in James 2. But the connection between Abraham and James is Jesus. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. James 3, who was measured in his speech, uttered no gossip, said exactly what he wanted to say without saying what he would eventually say for later when it was his time, Jesus. It, when speech is described as a horse's bit, a ship's rudder, a forest fire, a fountain of bitter water, no person avoided the abuses of gossip and the tongue more than Jesus to the utter frustration of his enemies. Who embodies the teaching of wisdom in James more than anybody else? And Lewis led us in that study last week. Paul told the Corinthians, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. James 4, who embodies the teaching, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, and he will exalt you. Who exemplifies that? Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, wherefore God highly exalted him. Who embodies the challenge, resist the devil, and he will flee from you? Why don't you tell me, who is that? Who embodies that? Right answer, Jesus. You're, you're kind of picking on, picking up, okay, you're getting the rhythm Getting the rhythm here. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, what did he say? Get thee behind me, Satan. Who refused to tell God what God's will should be so that God can conform his will to your desires? Jesus totally agreed with James. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He prayed in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. In James 5. Who taught that your yes should be yes and your no should be no? Jesus did. Make sure that your statement is yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil origin. Who exemplified prayer according to the will of God so that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much? Jesus did. His high priestly prayer in John 17, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, or the many times he went away by himself to pray so that the disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And the very last verse in James, who came to accomplish the turning of sinners from the errors of their ways in order to save their souls from death? What's the answer? Jesus. Born into the family of Joseph and Mary, the older brother of James, Simeon, Joseph, Jude, and the girls. God in the flesh to save sinners. Sinners like Joseph and Mary and James and Peter and Paul and Simeon and Jude and the girls. And like me and like you. 
Sometimes critics will claim that James wasn't much of a Christian. And you're looking at, you're, you're experiencing whiplash right now. James wasn't much of a Christian. It's, you'll find this in some higher critical books. Because he only mentions Jesus twice. How does James refer to Jesus? Listen to this. Chapter 1, verse 1. James, bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 1, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Note the addition of the title Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Lord, earliest confession of the church. Jesus is Lord, earliest creed. Meaning Jesus was Yahweh of the Old Testament, Jehovah. James says, he is glorious. And I'm his brother. No, no, no. I am his bondservant. This is not a tell-all book. I do not stand alongside him. I stand underneath him. He, the Son of God, stands alongside God the Father. That's the way James is teaching this. Also, James refers to the word Lord 15 times in his book. And the only two times in the book that the word Lord is identified, both times, that's used as a title of Jesus. So, James may speak of the Father as Lord, but the burden of proof would rest on anyone who would say he was excluding the Son. It does not. I find it fascinating that Jesus' other half-brother, Jude, begins his epistle, Jude 1, 1, or Jude 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. <laughs> to all those who were the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for the Lord Jesus Christ. James, Jesus' other brothers, went from saying he's out of his mind we need to take charge of him to worshiping him as God. To become leaders of the early church and to become martyrs. Thankful, perhaps, that, no, not perhaps, thankful, I am sure, that their mother was with John, whom Jesus knew would outlive his brothers and the rest of the twelve. They all gave up their lives to proclaim what they once thought was their brother's delusions. Only now they call their brother the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one. The title of today's sermon is James, the man behind the book. Even though I'd like to get to know James well enough to call him Jim, he does not allow us to do that. He doesn't talk about himself. Doesn't happen in Acts either. We learn more about James from Peter uh, and uh, uh, Paul than we do about uh, from Luke and Paul than we do from James himself. But the book that he gives us, encouraging us to be doers of the word, is a rich study, and, and I hope that the table is set and the feast is to follow. I know that because the, it's just such rich stuff. I want to close with something that I mentioned earlier that I find very comforting. Many of us have unsaved loved ones. Maybe you've prayed for them for decades. And, you, and maybe you want to say, Lord, um, okay, you appeared to James. Would you mind appearing to my dad? 
After all, seeing is believing. But that's not what Jesus promised. Remember doubting Thomas? He was demanding empirical proof of Jesus' resurrection, and he got it. But listen to what Jesus told Thomas. Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it in my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas didn't do that. Here's what Thomas did. He said, my Lord and my God. And here's what Jesus said in response. Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. Turns out, it's not seeing is believing. Turns out, believing is seeing, as Augustine said. Maybe you're like James. You've been told the truth, but you're a skeptic. Do you have good reason to be a skeptic? Really? Love to talk with you about it. James had been told the truth, but didn't believe the truth. And now James exhorts us in this book to pray. And if you have unsaved loved ones, you know what that means. You pray, and you pray, and you pray until you have no more breath. Our prayer is that our loved ones will join alongside the unbeliever who was radically saved and then led the Jerusalem church in worship. Or to use James' own description of his brother, our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. And Lord, as we reflect upon what it may have been like to know Jesus face to face, we thank you that we have this promise that we are blessed when we have not seen and yet believe. I pray this in the name of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me and let's sing, let's use our parts to uh, the, the sing the parts of the doxology together. Let's make it robust. Uh, make sure that uh, it's heard up in New York. Okay? Let's sing together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise singing. And now the God of peace be with you all. Amen.